So the story is that if between the time I was born and the time when I had to make my own life, unless my two feet were planted on the ground and I was in charge of my own ethics, I had absolutely no health, none whatsoever. In fact, um, the opposite. So here I am. It's uh, pretty much at that time about just past World War II. Even until then, I was on my own. I was eight when my mother was taken. And I was 10, I guess, when the war ended. My mother was alive. She was very, um, everybody thought she spoiled me terribly. But I remember because people would like to say what they thought. And um, when she disappeared, Can I tell you? I've known Irene Robinson for about 30 years and not once did I ever hear her talk about uh, her childhood, but I was on the cruise with her and Andy and all of a sudden at breakfast, the most unlikely place in the middle of the ocean, she starts telling me what happened. Yeah, and, and um, when you when you reached out, to me and told me that she would tell us on the podcast it would you know we we haven't really i i've honestly never in my memory spoken to someone who's um lived through the holocaust as a a, a jewish person no uh and it it was a really emotional day and when we left i didn't really know what to do with with everything it was it was a lot to go through because not only was I seeing this woman whose whole life had been impacted, but I was seeing a little girl just, I was seeing the war through a little girl's eyes and it was too much. Yeah, um, and, and, and it's interesting that you say that just because, you know, I, I, I had, I guess her storytelling ability it just it just brought this really vivid image to mind and so I I I don't I don't think anybody's going to hear too much of of me talking just because I I was so taken by by the imagery that that she was conveying and and really trying to co contextualize it in 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 today's world like it's an experience that I am so far from from having you know had yeah i know what you mean it's funny i'm used to it being storytelling in terms of movies and television shows over and over the occupation of paris by the germans it, it's it's hard to go no this isn't a story this is her life Irene, you mentioned that um, you had to figure out your own ethics at a very young age. How did you do that? 
all by yourself? Where do you, where do you find ethics as as a young person? Oh God. So I have to then go back. The Germans marched into France, and I remember when they marched in, because they marched in, and um, that was... August 40. Yeah, 40? Oh, okay, August 40. By then I had gone to public school. Uh, I knew how to read and write. I could play the piano. I knew how to read music, and my mother had bought me one of the most expensive you can buy in those days, which was handmade by a company named Playel. And she decided, all by herself, that I would become a famous pianist, which did not work, because I loved the music, but I did not like to keep practicing piano. So, in any case, my mother had come from, at that time, I think it was Russia. I'm not sure because where she was was probably where the war is now. And it kept changing. It was either Polish, it was either Russia, it was whatever. And she came and her family, she had sisters and brothers, also arranged for Khan to come to America and decided she didn't like what she saw and took whatever money they gave her and went to Paris. Now, now that I know my mother, this is like, what? But she did. She had the name of one person. And that person worked as a, uh, I don't, her name was Luda, I don't remember. Luda was a seamstress and worked in a theater and uh, made costumes. And uh, she managed to hire my mother to repair things. And my mother got a job at a, not a big theater, but a fairly large theater near Lake Ridley. Okay, so in comes my father, who was brought up a religious Jew and decided that he didn't want to be, and went to Germany to become a student, and um, decided he would become a communist. And so he went to Paris with two other friends of his, and he got a, somehow or other became the kind of person who went around to places where a whole bunch of people worked and tried to put them into a union. And so he met my mother. She was she was still a practicing Jew. Or she, even though none of that was allowed in our house, and um, if she tried to pray or say something which would, my father would consider stupid, um, she was not allowed to continue with that. So. And in terms of ethics, they were, I'm sure they were very nice people. I know that um, we adopted this motley crew. This actress, who's no longer an actress,
Marcus had a son who was a vaudeville actor, uh, who worked at, in small clubs at night. And um, um, his wife was still doing costumes. They had two children, small children, and they worked at night. So the arrangement became that my father, because my parents at first thought that the Germans were only taking men. Who told them that? I don't know, because now looking back at it, it's absolutely not true. But um, anyway, they made an arrangement that my father would go live with them so they could work at night and take care of the two children. And he never left their apartment. That way. So that's when he was in hiding. Yeah. My mother and I and my sister, who's seven years or eight years younger than I, um, stayed in the apartment. And how often would you see your, your father at that point? Not do you remember? You never? No. Oh. Um, what, what is, how do you keep going with life in, in a war district like that? Going to piano lessons, even thinking piano lessons are important when you know. My mother thought that was important because she couldn't figure out what was going to happen to me. She knew that she didn't want me to make clothes. And, you know. But I mean the threat, the daily threat. Yes. How, what, what is that like? It's everybody was scared. People who had money, there were some people in the, because I lived in the third island of Smyrna, which was mostly immigrants and Jews. Um, there were some well-to-do people who had, had businesses, uh, and as soon as they saw what was going on, they left. Hmm. But people who didn't have a lot of money couldn't do that because you still had to go through the German occupation part. So, okay, so the next thing my parents, my mother devised was that there was a police station right across from where we lived. And my mother went and made friends <coughs> with the policeman there. Now, mind you, my mother doesn't speak French. And I don't think ever did. Um, but somehow or other, she got in touch with this one policeman there. And she asked him if he knew when they were going to have raids, which they usually did in the evenings. And the French police would come with the Germans. And they would go through a street and go through the apartments and and, and find the Jewish people. And find Jewish people. Well, they they are very organized, in case you didn't know that. When they came into Paris, everyone had to have an identity card and a food card. I mean, a, some, you know. And so everyone had to register at the police. And you would get an identity card, you would be like, well, then you were okay. So, so in, in order to eat, the police had to know where you were. Where you were. Right. In order to do anything, they right. had to know. So your father is now out of the house permanently. Yeah. And you and your sister are living with your mother. That is correct. And they come and take her? 
Well, there's a piece I'm going to tell you now. Okay. Uh, it was an apartment house that we lived in. It had six floors. And on the sixth floor lived a man who came from Alsace-Lorraine, which is very close to Germany and which uh, had people who were very close to the Germans. This man and his wife made a very nice living um, selling things that I remember were like silk stockings and um, food and um, stuff that you couldn't get. How did they get it? Being friends with the Germans. So they used to call me when they would get packages and they used to call me sometimes and they had, they would bring in these huge German dolls that had real hair, that were about this tall and very beautifully dressed and stuff. And they would come and say, okay, I went. And uh, wouldn't you like to have one of them? Uh, well, of course, I had been trained already to say no. So, oh, no, it's very nice. Thank you for your letting me see them. Is that, I'm sorry to cut you off. Is that is that cultural? Is that like because you don't want to take favors from people that you don't trust? Or is that, is that have to do with the way that you In were raised? The, it was the war. It's the war. I'm not to talk to anybody. I am not to talk to anyone about anything. My parents were listening to the radio, which I was not supposed to tell anybody. I think it must have been the British. And um, it was like being in a kind of a prison mm. for me. Mm. But the one thing that my father did that I have to be thankful to him for Whatever piece of paper came in the house with any printing on it, whether it was a book or a newspaper, a foreign paper, anything, I could read. I was allowed to read it. Not only that, he would ask me questions. We would, you know, sometimes if he felt like it, we would discuss it. And it was never, well, no, you can't read that or you can't read that. So in, in, in one, in one, on one side of your upbringing at this time, it sounds like your your mother is taking an approach of letting life be as ordinary as it possibly can be for you, yeah. where you're still going to recital and you're 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 allowed or you're you're inspired to dream about you know being a famous pianist and you know, life is as normal as it can be. And, and your dad is also helping you to be grounded in the reality of, of, of the situation. Well, I, I don't know whether he actually thought that way, but it was much easier to just let me read anything than to say, no, you can't have that, which most parents did. That was the way, you, you know, I think, uh, I was the only child in my building who knew that children didn't come delivered by a um, stork. stork. <laughs> Honestly. 
And as soon as the parents found out that I knew because my mother was pregnant, and I told, even though I was told not to, then the children were not allowed to play with me. And they were all going to catechism, and they all had these wonderful white dresses um, at a certain point in their lives when they'd march around. And they'd be given um, candy and all sorts of things. They'd go to church and stuff, but I wasn't. But I didn't say that I would have liked to, but by then I'm still pretty happy. Yeah. So this neighbor from Alsace, what ultimately happened with, with this neighbor? Well, he went to the Gestapo and he told them that my mother was Jewish, even though she had lied on her paper. And um, why? why? Why did he do that? Because of his... Him off. She wouldn't pay him off, probably, I but I don't think she had any money. And he showed up one morning with three or four Gestapo men and two or three policemen. So with her father in hiding and her mother taken by the Gestapo, Irene and her sister were left all by themselves. Her sister at this point, I think, was uh, nearly a year old. So a cousin uh, started to look for a place that would take them in. And there must have been some kind of a understanding with a bunch of people who did this that she was looking for a family who might want to take in two children. And she found this, she found this family. And uh, she came here, or for me, she came here. And um, what were they like to you? It was a, a working class family. Men, worked, they worked all the time. They had two boys. Approximately my age, maybe in their early teens, maybe a little older. And they had a daughter who joined the, there was at that time a bunch of people who would join something called the uh, Alliance. Nazi movement. That, yes, it was a young Nazi movement. And this young woman did. The two boys were you know, in school, not paying attention, but she did. And she uh, came back from there. Again, I don't know exactly, but she came back pregnant. And until then, she was very caring with my sister. Because my sister was, what, a year? Not even a year anymore. And when then, when she was pregnant, she you know, didn't really take care of her dear. And then Nadine came back from there. She was starved. She was filthy. She didn't know how to speak. Um, so, we're there. And the two boys are told by this sister, because we all slept in the same big room on top of the house, and I heard her tell them that every day they had to beat me up as if we, as if I was in the concentration camp. Oh. And of course,
course, I've never been outside of an apartment in Paris and park. And we lived across from a fairly large forest. So my job in the morning, this is going to sound so weird to you, but it's true. My job in the morning was to go across the street into the woods and bring home some dry wood. Dry wood. We had a you know place downstairs where there was coal, and that's where we used to run at night when there were bombings and stuff and sit on piles of coals. But I never knew about dry pieces of wood. They taught me pretty quickly. You break them, you put them on brick and so on and so forth, and then I get beaten up. So, okay, so now we're at the next part. Wait, can I, I just want to, I don't want to linger here too long, no, but no. Uh, <laughs> they would beat you up because you didn't choose the wood properly? Correct. When they grew up there, they know. Um, and then I had another job, which was uh, in France, or at least there, they had these bottles that you take to the um, to the wine shop. She was a very pleasant-looking woman. I, I still can see her. Nobody else was ever in the store, especially in the morning when I would go. And uh, one day she said to me, I see you coming here. She said, you look very sad and you're crying. I said, no. And she said, uh, you can tell me. You can tell me, she said. I know you're not happy and so on and so forth. And she would say hi to me every morning and was nice to me and and I said I'm not allowed to tell you. She said, Well, we have to do something. She said, How can I help you? And I said, I wanna leave and I think if I if I could get to Paris I could find my father or my or my aunt, my little ones. I go back the next day, and she has ready for me a whole bunch of information. This is how I go to the bus station, and shows me there's there's a hedge around this particular road. You walk behind it. Nobody will see you, and then when you get to the, and then this is where the bus station is. And this is the money for the bus to go to Paris. And if anybody asks, you said, you just tell them that, yes, you had some time off and you're going to see your aunt in Paris who hasn't seen you in a while. Sure. So I'm sitting on the bus and sure enough, somebody asked me how come I'm not in school. And I said, well, you know, my aunt wants to see me. It's been a while. I'm just going to get off. Get off at my stop, get on the metro, and do something which I had not been told. I want to see my father. I want somebody to know what's going on. 
I get on the subway and I go to where I used to live. And the concierge sees me coming. And one of the people in the building see me coming. And fortunately, um, uh, Tonkan, um, Tan Simon, who is Marie-Louise descendant, um, sees all, knows that I've come to her apartment and that I have gone. And so she comes with me. She says, oh, no, you're not going there by yourself. So we go to my old apartment. And uh, how that happens afterwards, I don't remember. But somebody gets hold of, well, yeah, Marie-Louise knows what's happening. And she gets in touch with the people where my father is. And my father, and we go there. And my father tells me that I have just made it possible for the Germans to find us all and arrest us all and kill us all. Welcome. Um, so, uh, yeah, okay. But that wasn't the first thought in my mind when I ran away. So... <laughs> may, may, I, may I really quickly just stop to say that that must have been the worst possible feeling. I, I mean, it, yeah. uh, that... It was one of the worst possible feelings. There were several. I'm so sorry. But anyway, that's that was my childhood, basically. Uh, so we have a we have a sit-in co-host uh, right now, Andy Andy Robinson, is sitting in for uh, Mom at the moment, um, and we're gonna I think we're gonna just pick up where we left off. The thing is about Irene's stories, her story, is that she's written a series which you know she won't she won't look written. They're more, they're more than vignettes. They're not quite short stories, but they are short stories. They're brilliant pieces of, uh, of what, what you guys were just talking about in terms of the war and, and after the war and, and her life. Um, and you know, I was looking at those stories the other day, and it, it's, it's astonishing to me because you talked about Ethics and and her hers was the ethic of survival. And and whatever that impels someone to keep moving forward, which is the only thing that we can do, you know, in those circumstances. And that that's always been the thing about Irene that I loved and that and that and that we fell in love about. I mean, you know, it, it was it was both of us were kind of orphans from the storm and 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 the only thing that that made sense to us was moving forward and in in your case Irene it's you know what it's the repeated trauma it's it's like one trauma after another and and how you survive that it's it, that is is something that still is baffling to me. It's, it never occurred to me as I was doing life. Never. That I was just surviving. You know, it's like 
I hear the kids, including my own, uh, it's so boring, life is so boring, boring, boring. My life never felt boring to me. Now, when you're eight or nine years old, oh. and, you, and, and, and you, yeah. you do what you did, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, how, how, does that, how does that happen? I mean, I, I think of our children, our grandchildren, when they're eight and nine years old, they, they had a childhood. Something that I'm stuck thinking about is uh, the feeling of, on one hand, being so capable and 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 being having that reminder of I survived something incredibly difficult and traumatic. But then, on the other hand, thinking that these horrible things were happening all around you, so it's like. You can't quite feel fortune. I mean, you know, I, 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 that, that, that's something that seems so confusing to me, and 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 that I'm having. Well, you don't get a difficult out, time processing. You don't get out unaffected. Right. I mean, Irene truly has PTSD, and and it's it's like uh, I never knew what PTSD was until you know I I started, you know, I mean. People started talking about it, and then I realized Irene has PTSD. And the older, you know, the older you've gotten, the, the worse it affects me. Yeah, mm. because it's very deep into my own cellular structure and my soul, and there's no way that it can be quote erased or worked out. It's just part of who I am. So there's an incredible price that that that, that that's paid for this. I mean, you know. We're human. But, but I was having a really terrible day yesterday. Terrible. Yeah. I don't know why. One of the things that triggers it, by the way, is feeling cold. Feeling cold. I get cold. And it seems like that's it's something I can't quite get out of. And so I'm always looking for enough heat. <laughs> well, I live in California, but of course it's not doing what it's supposed to do these days. Oh, right. No, the cold, the cold threatens you. I've always known that, and it's always been a thing where we've argued over the thermostat. You know, well, not in New York City in an apartment that was always too much no, heat. That's, I think that's one of the reasons why you always wanted to go back to New York is because of that terrible goddamn heat. So, is there any plan with with the writing that you've you've collected? Is this something that you intend on sharing? Is this for you your own? At one time, I did, but now I'm not sure. Um, my son Danny. Um, knows more about my life than the other children. Rachel sort of. Rachel knows a lot. lot um, about being a young woman and a young woman in the world by yourself. Um, Well, I'm going to revisit it. I mean, you know. You write what you need to write. It's not your fault. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
if in closing, if, if there's anything else you'd like to reflect on about your experiences growing up and, and maybe, maybe how it ties to today, or if, if there's anything else you'd like to share, um, that comes to mind, um, we'd be all ears, I guess. The only thing I can tell you is I think I was very fortunate that um, there were people, you know, I'm a pretty young woman and there were things I was not quite up to oil, but on the, it's, it's a life that I really lived. And I watched my sister, which was not very well dressed and a very painful life. She gave into despair in a way that you didn't. She almost didn't need to see any kind of people in it. Yeah, but you also, but you also, and that's what I mean about you always moving forward. Because you like yesterday, you had a bout of despair. You, you know, the black dog visited you. Yeah. And not for long. No, not even a day. <laughs> but I don't like to visit very often. No, nobody likes the black dog to visit. Well, I can just say thank you so much. I well, feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah, thank you, and you as well. Yeah, a very special experience, and uh, so fascinating to hear about. Um, yeah, very thought provoking. Thank you for sharing everything. You're welcome. Thank you, Irene.